Well, good morning, and as we continue to move closer to God himself, may we just connect those dots between that line and that previous song, that we would know more and more that we are deeply loved by God and deeply cherished and valued, and that that would just shatter our resistances to him. Let's pray that together for just a brief moment. Father, we open our hearts and surrender to your love, and we pray that you would speak to us now for Christ's sake, and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here today, and uh, I'd like to welcome those of you joining us online, wherever you are. I got a text. Some people are at the beach. They're on vacation, and you're joining us online. Also want to say shout out to my family in Texas and Michigan family. Welcome to wherever you are. We're glad you're tuning in, and I think God has something for us here uh, today. Uh, my name is Chad Myers, if we haven't met yet. This is my first official sermon uh, as a staff member of Mount Horeb, and I would like to think of it as my first of hundreds of many sermons that I will get to share with you as we share together what God has for us um, uh, in, in this place. I'd like to read our text this morning and go ahead and dive in. We're in the Psalms of Ascents, and we are in Psalm 128. I'll be reading from the NIV. You can follow along on the screen. It says this, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is a song about the blessed life. Hashtag blessed. If Joel Osteen was given this talk, it might be titled something like this, your blessed life now. That was so bad, it's good. I heard a few chuckles. Come on, it was so bad, it's good. The title of my talk today is We're On Our Way. We're On Our Way. How many of you have ever been on a road trip with small kids, a long road trip with small kids? Or maybe you've been on a road trip with adults who act like small kids. Adultlers, adult toddlers we call them right? And you get on this road trip and it's, it's well over two hours. That's what I would consider a little bit longer road trip for these types of people and children. And about 20 to 30 minutes in, what is the number one question that always gets asked? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I don't know why, but that sets off so many things in my mind and in my spine. I just, spine, I just start to go crazy. Are we there yet? Is the car still moving? Are we still traveling? Then no, we're not there yet. And I don't imagine that children or adulters have changed in about a thousand, thousands of years so that I'm thinking through this psalm of a sense as pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem on the long journey that that question continued to arise. Are we there yet? And the answer is, no, we're not there yet, but we're on our way. We're on our way. And I think that's not just, it wasn't just true literally, but it was true in a deeper way. You see, we're on our way. We're not where we're supposed to be, but we're not where we've been, but we're on our way spiritually. We're in process. We're a work in progress. 
And let me just take that picture and drop it right into the context of this psalm, which is a family psalm. So families would have sang this together and they would have been reminded the importance of singing and chanting and memorizing and it would have sank into their bones together. This would have shaped them to be the people they were supposed to be. And that's the importance. What the Psalms do is they remind us of the importance of corporate worship, whether we're here or we're at home, of corporate worship. Because let me just be honest, when I come in this room each week, I'm, I'm not the man I'm supposed to be. I'm not the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm not the father I'm supposed to be. I'm not the son or the brother that I'm supposed to be. I'm on my way. You're on your way. We're not where we're supposed to be, but we're not where we've been. We're on our way. Everybody look someone around you say, I'm on my way. Say the best is yet to come. And we're going to need this because in the context of family, often we can experience the greatest pleasure and the greatest pain. And we're going to need to look around those of us who we are tracking with on this pilgrimage and say, you know what? You're on your way. It's okay. You're not there yet. You're not who you're supposed to be, but you're on your way. And as we come together as the people of God, we sing this and it reminds us and it shapes us into who we're supposed to be. And I want you to hear this, church. This is the importance and the value of joining together. My family's here today and a few weeks ago, it was the first time that we were able to be in church together for corporate worship since COVID hit. And uh, me and my wife looked at each other afterwards and my wife said, it's so refreshing to be in church together. That was such a wonderful, revitalizing, reviving experience. You see, we come into this place and we're not who we're supposed to be. But as we sing these songs, these psalms together, we are shaped into who we're supposed to be. We sing our way into new ways of being. Let me say that again. We sing our way into new ways of being. I had a seminary professor, and he was trying to humble us all, and he said something like this, no one's going to remember your sermon. And I thought to myself, have you heard one of my sermons? He would have been unimpressed. He said, no one remembers your sermon. They sing their theology. And I think to his point, it's true. As we come together and we sing These psalms remind us and they shape us of who we're supposed to be. We are on our way. And one of the things we're really going to need to be better on our way, we're going to find right in verse 1 of this passage, and it's the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? What does it look like? What does it bring? The phrase, the fear of the Lord, is mentioned hundreds of times throughout the scripture. Many more times, to be honest, in the Old Testament than the New. But I believe the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is just code word for the great commandment in the New Testament. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 112 says that the fear of the Lord causes us to delight in the commandments of God. Psalm 128, as we jump into this, defines itself, and we should always let the context give us its definition. It says this, this is what the fear of the Lord is, uh, those who walk in obedience to him. So quite simply, to fear God is to walk in obedience to his commands. 
that we're diving into the scriptures, that we know the text, that we begin to know the text better, and that we pray and wrestle, and by God's grace, we walk in those commands. And when we fail, we repent and we confess and we get back up and we try again and say, God, continue to give me strength to walk in your ways. But what does it look like? Let me illustrate. When we, uh, when we moved here a little over a month ago, uh, we had a little time uh, before I started work, and so we went to the beach uh, it was one of the gifts of moving here. Is the beach is really close. That's nice. So we went to the beach, and this would have been the first time that uh, our kids would have remembered. They've been to the ocean before, but that several of them would have remembered what it's like to be in the waves, in the powerful waves. And I love playing in the ocean. This was a great day for it. It was like double red flag, like the waves are huge, like you got to be cautious. And you're going out. It's like six or seven foot of waves, no lie. And uh, they were just thrashing us, and we were jumping in. and love. We were boogie boarding. We were body surfing. It was fantastic. But my 11-year-old, remember, this is the first time that their bodies would have, would have felt this is what it's like to be in the ocean. And it's a powerful thing. And so my 11-year-old is making her way out into the ocean and the waves are just beating her up, right? And so, you know, you're getting hit and then you're standing up and trying to catch a breath and then another one comes right on you and crashes over you and knocks you down. And uh, being the good dad I am, I'm kind of laughing at the whole situation. and <laughs> like, hey, good for you. Welcome to the ocean. And I could see that she starts to get frustrated and she started to become embittered at the waves. And I said something to her like this, like, hey, it's not the ocean's fault. That's just how it is. You have to cooperate with it. And that's what the fear of the Lord is like. To fear the Lord means to cooperate with the foundational rhythms of the created order. There is a way things work. There is a way that God has created things to work. There's a way things are supposed to be real reality. There's a way that people are supposed to be that I'm supposed to be. And this is what sin and redemption means. Sin means that I'm incongruent with that way, that I'm out of step with that rhythm, that I'm resisting as we sing about, that I'm fighting against those strong currents of God's ways. But redemption means that in and through the death and resurrection of Christ, I am awakened to be more fully functioning humanity and that I'm empowered to keep in step with those rhythms, to keep in step with those ways. So not just an awareness of the rhythms, but an empowerment to cooperate more. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way I'm supposed to be. And more and more, we get transformed. And that's what the fear of the Lord brings. It's not a, it's not a, a person that's afraid of God and that just obeys because they're uh, dreadful of God's judgment. It's a person that has a healthy understanding of how life really works and says, I want to cooperate with that. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God set it up by God's grace. I want to walk into those rhythms. And so the fear of the Lord is like that. But what does the fear of the Lord bring? And just three things from this passage that I want us to see today. First of all, the fear of the Lord brings responsibility and enjoyment. Responsibility and enjoyment. Look at verse two. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Now, in just a minute, it's going to get into the picture of a family. But before it does, the Hebrew poetry here is addressing second person singular. So it's talking to each of us as individuals. No matter who we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter what age we are, this is addressing all of us to say, if you want to secure the favor of God, 
If you want the outcome of cooperating with the oceans, you first have to start with the fear of the Lord. This is how it goes. And you can't have one without the other. And he says in verse two, the fear of God and the blessed life brings responsibility and enjoyment. You will eat the fruit of your labor and you'll be satisfied. You'll enjoy it. Wendell Berry is an American novelist and a Christian author. He also is um, a farmer. He's very concerned about uh, soil, environment, um, and what we do with the earth and the world around us. And um, he lives in Kentucky, and he bought a, a small farm there years ago. And he often uses the farm as an analogy for the spiritual life and in calling and invocation. And one of the things that he talks about repeatedly is that we've each been given a plot of land. We've each been given this lot, so to speak, this calling, this vocation, and ours is unique. There's no other one like it. It belongs to you or it belongs to me. And my job as a Christian uh, to be faithful to Jesus is to be faithful with the plot of land that I've been given. So if I'm a student, my faithfulness to Jesus partially is exhibited by my faithfulness to being a student. Parents, I know you like to hear that. Students, I know you hate it. Parents are like, did you hear him? Did you see that? And listen to him. Look at his shoes. You have to listen to him. You have to listen to what this guy says, right? I heard a student one time say something like this. You know, I don't want to go to math class. I just want to read the Bible all day. And he was being praised by a youth pastor. And I thought to myself, well, that's a nice sentiment, but it's absolutely out of touch with the biblical reality because the Bible calls us to be faithful with the vocation that we have. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, you know, if you're CEO of a Fortune 500, whatever you have been given, the Bible says your call, your faithfulness to Jesus is partially exhibited through your faithfulness to this lot of land. That's what verse two says, that we've been awakened into fully functioning humanity to say, God, help me be faithful with what you've set before me. Help me coax out the most growth possible from this for your sake and for others. And listen to the way Martin Luther King Jr. puts it. I love it. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Linton Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. It's true. Whatever we've been given, that's our lot. And we've been invited to be responsible for it. But it's not just that. It's not just that. One of the greatest gifts of the grace of God is that we actually start to enjoy it is that we don't resent it, is that we don't only see it as a burden. We don't only see it as a drudgery. We start to say, you know, I'm, I'm finding purpose in this thing. I'm finding some meaning in what God has called me to do. And no, it's not perfect. And it's not, I don't wake up every day just absolutely ready to go, but I'm getting there. I'm on my way. And for some of us, we're just not there. We don't enjoy it. It is a drudgery. That's okay. I would just invite you to do this. Just start to pray that you would find some sense of enjoyment in the calling that God has for you. This is what Ecclesiastes says, that this is one of the greatest gifts of God that we would start to find a sense of meaning in the work that God has called us to do. And so I just invite us to pray for it and keep praying for it until you see it happen. 
The fear of God brings responsibility and enjoyment. And secondly, the fear of God brings investment in intimate relationships. Look at this, verse three and four. This is a beautiful picture. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. You see, gives us a picture of a family. And he gives us a, a wonderful picture of mutual refreshment. You see, he says, you know what? Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. This is uh, a simile for bearing children. Your wife will bear children. And those children will be like olive shoots. They'll be around the dinner table. They'll be around the table. And it will be a mutual refresh, refreshment. This is an order of the way God has invited the family to exist. This is an order that we see laid down in scripture of a blessed family, a well-ordered family. And we see this. It's a wonderful thing. The fruitfulness of the vine would have represented wine and the olive would have represented olive oil, the olive press, and they would have been emblems of the highest favor and blessing for the nation of Israel. And they would have been symbols for refreshment and enjoyment. Now we just we actually just got our dinner table up um, probably just a, a week or so ago. We've been kind of scattered all over, eating in different places wherever we could sit. Some of us standing, some of us sitting. Uh, but we bought our dinner table um, years ago, and we love it. It's one of our favorite things. It's a nice long table, and there's a bench, and there's chairs. And, and we don't always get it right, but when we have those moments around the table where we are sharing life together as a family, it's a rich thing. It's unspeakable blessing. And God does that. God has that for us. And one of my concerns, if I can be really candid with you, is the disintegration of the family in today's society. And that's impacting the church. That's impacting the evangelical church. I'm going to share, uh, can I share a, a commercial that I saw that really bothered me? Good, I'm going to share it. Uh, it. It doesn't have to bother you, but it like super bothered me. And it was a commercial um, about this family with one child and they got him a robot. They said, hey, we have this gift for you and we'd love to give it to you. And so the kid lights up and they said, hey, here's this robot. That's fine, AI, I'm, I'm, I love it, technology. I'm not saying it's, it's evil, it's a good thing. And so uh, they gave him the robot and then all of a sudden the robot starts to engage the child and I'm kind of bought into the commercial by now. I'm like, oh, wow, this is, what's going on? This is really cool. And then he starts to engage the child in like really important intimate conversations like, hey, your friend hurt your feelings or you got left out. Talk to me about that. And they start to process these deep emotions or, hey, you know, why don't you make a card for mom or a card for dad and tell them how much you love them and all these things. And I felt so conflicted at the end of the commercial. And as I reflected back, I started to, to started to really bother me. And I thought to myself, you know, the parents were mostly completely out of the picture in this thing. And as a dad, the dad was, com was, was almost virtually completely absent. He stood at the door and I don't think he had two words to say in the whole commercial. And I thought to myself, that really bothers me. That really bothers me. And I don't always get it right. Remember, as I said, I'm not who I'm supposed to be, but I'm on my way. And we're on our way as families. It's easy to get lost, friends. It's easy to get lost. But the fear of the Lord, hear me, the fear of the Lord helps you understand that those around the dinner table are more important than those around the conference table. Oh, are we preaching are we preaching now? No, he didn't. Uh, I think he just did. Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. And P.S., I can hear both of you. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord 
helps us understand that when we invest in intimate relationships around us with trust and love and depth, that's eternal compound interest. You hear me? That's eternal compound interest. Now, some of you will say, some of you will say, but that's not a picture of my family. That is not what my family looks like. I hear you. And I just want to say this. This is a picture of a family. It's not a picture of every family. This is a picture of a family. It's not a picture of every family. And we would be foolish to not use some sacred imagination and go back in time and say, you know, on that road, as they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem on that road, there were people who were widows. There were those who were on their second or their third marriage. There were those with barren wombs. There were those who had taken in kids that weren't theirs, that maybe a relative they had passed and they had adopted them. There were singles, young adults on that road, right? And maybe, maybe this is not a picture of your family at all. Maybe you're single and you're same-sex attracted and you're really trying to, re, to, to remain celibate because that's the way that you're trying to work with the, net, the created order of things. And you would say, that's not a picture of my family, but this is not a picture of every family. And let me just say this, and I want you to take this home. A broken home doesn't keep you from being a blessed home. A broken home doesn't keep you from being a blessed home. And friends, please don't look at my home and think it's intact and that brokenness hasn't touched it because brokenness touches every family. It makes its way and, and, and it infects everything east of Eden. So we all have to fight against it, no matter what our family looks like. And some of you may say, but I don't even have a family. You know, I almost feel like an orphan. I got a family, but I don't even have a family. It's not like we're connected. It's not like we keep in touch. You do have a family. Listen to Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake, listen to this, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And as someone who left my biological family at 21 and I haven't lived around them really since and I've been out in the world, I'll tell you this, this promise is true. Because wherever we go and wherever we've been called to, people reach out to us, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, cousins, and they love us and they support us and they encourage us and it's so true. And I would just want to say thank you to Mount Hor because already you have shown us so much hospitality and so much love that this is coming true for us right now as we're here. This is true for you too. This promise is true. God gives us a family in the family of God. The church is a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing. And for some of you, this, this picture may never be true, may never ever be true. Let me just remind us that temporary burdens don't negate eternal blessings. That that promise will be true, even if it's on the other side. And for some of us, there's a lot of grief when we look at this picture. There's just a lot of grief. And I would just say to you, tenderly, please don't nurse your grief into bitterness because that will keep you from experiencing the blessing of the people of God. 
that will keep you from experiencing the blessing of the favor of God. God wants us to have, he gives us responsibility and enjoyment. The fear of the Lord teaches us to invest in intimate relationships. And lastly, the fear of the Lord brings generational and communal perspective. Look at verse five. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace or shalom. Shalom be on Israel. Now, I'm going to say a statement. And I know we're trying to get to know each other's personalities and stuff. And you're, you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm not joking. This is a serious statement. And I mean it. And you're going to think it's weird. And it's going to sound a little strange. But more and more you sit with it, you're going to be like, by goodness, I think he was right. That was your accent, not mine. I don't talk like that. You do. Here's a statement. The most overlooked and underrated church growth model is for believers to get married and have children. The most overlooked and underrated church growth model is for believers to get married and have children and nourish them in the love of God so that as they grow up, they begin to have the story, there was never a day when I wasn't loved by God. There was never a day when I didn't experience the grace and the love of God. And I believe this to be true. Again, even if our family doesn't quite look like this, this is the picture God has for us. Did you know this? Did you know that there are countries in Europe that are not reproducing their population? They're not doing it. They're not having children. And in two generations, if a generation is 70 years, in two generations, there are some countries, some nationalities that will cease to exist because they're not bringing kids into this world. What is it? I believe it's a sign of despair. It's a sign of despair. We are at an intersection that looks something like this. Part of the intersection says the individual is supreme. I am supreme. I think, therefore, I am. This is about me. This is about my career. This is about my dreams and my life. And everything revolves around that. Now, that's been in the works for quite a long time, post-enlightenment. But we're also at the intersection of something else, and that's existential despair. There's a loss of one story that binds everything together. There's a loss of one meta narrative that really brings cohesion to all thoughts and ideas together. And we are at this crossroads of the individual is supreme and existential despair. And what does that bring? I don't want kids to be an inconvenience and I don't want to bring a child into this super messed up world. I've heard it. Maybe you've heard it. Now, some of you, maybe there's other reasons you can't bring a child into this world. I'm not talking to you. But for those people that really wrestle with this world is so dark and it's hopeless and I don't want to bring a kid into this world, let me just argue, if that's the sentiment, I would say that has more to say about you than it does the state of the world. Because the kingdom of God has always been invisible has always been almost imperceptible. It's always been organic. And the advancement of it has almost been like watching the grass grow. That's why it takes eyes of faith and hope to see it. To say, you know what? I don't want to rob myself and I don't want to rob anybody else of the being able to give a gift back to the world. To say, I'm here for a purpose and I'm here for a reason and I'm here to keep spreading God's love around. I have something to offer. And the fear of the Lord brings a hope that is stronger than despair. 
there's a mayor in Italy, a little town called Laviano, Italy. 2002, he was walking the streets and he was giving this report to the New York Times and he said, um, there's two numbers that really bothered me last year. The numbers were four and five. Four was the number of children born in the village in the previous year. Five was the number of kids enrolled in the preschool. And I don't know if he was a believer or not, but he said, this can't be. This can't be. We have to do something about this. He said, we have to get more kids and we have to get more kids in the school because a village without a school is a dead village. Friends, I would argue a church without the next generation in mind is a dead church. I was talking through this conversation with Pastor Jeff this week and he said this and I figured I'd give him credit because it's pretty good. He said, um, Christianity is always one generation away from being extinct. And I think that's true. And so now I'm not just talking about biological children because there's many ways to bring kids into the family and there's many ways to think outside of ourselves to say, how do we invest in the next generation? But that's the calling of a mature church. A mature church says, we have to be thinking about them, not just now, and we have to be thinking about them, not just me. And how do we begin to set the next generation up for success in faith? We have to be on our way so they can be on their way. And we have to give them an opportunity to sing the same songs or their own songs and make that pilgrimage and be in process so that they can wrestle with faith and carry the torch on. This is God's blessing upon those who fear him, that we have responsibility and enjoyment, that we begin to be faithful with what he's given us and we begin to enjoy it. Then we invest in intimate relationships, whether that's friends or family or significant others, we start to say, I'm gonna intentionally turn some time towards you, towards us. And that we have a generational and communal perspective. And this might just be the hardest because I think everything in us works against this one, that we begin to think outside of ourselves, that we exist in community. And we find our identity in that community and we begin to think beyond ourselves. How do we set up the next generation to carry the torch of faith? I'm gonna read a passage from Genesis 12 and then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing uh, what I believe a very powerful song that really kind of ties all this together. Genesis 12 says this, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was a promise to Abraham and you notice that key word that's just jumping off the page and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed and we know this came to its culmination in Jesus who was born from the line of Abraham. And then he started the church and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we might continue this promise in bringing blessing to family upon family upon family upon family. Let's pray towards that end together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the gift of it. And even though in many ways it, it reads us and exposes some things where we fall short, we're still grateful that we get to repent and confess and turn towards you and you strengthen us to continue to be on our way. God, for some of us here, help us to give ourselves wide lanes of grace to say, it's okay, I'm not there yet. 
but we're going. Uh, for some of us, help us to give those around the table and those in our lives wide lanes of grace. To see the best is yet to come. Father, help us be a church that envisions how to pass on the flame of faith to the next generation. We pray this for your sake, and may you get the glory. Amen.